Please note this episode of The Criminal Maze contains descriptions of violence, death, suicide and sexual acts which some people may find disturbing. Welcome back to the Criminal Maze podcast. Uh, this is the second half of our conversation with Professor Sue Black. Enjoy. I, I find it fascinating what you can do with the living body, but even more so with um, bones. And I came across a case you talked about, I believe it was in Scotland, where there was a hood of a jacket in a tree and a pile of bones underneath it, essentially. Um, and the work you did led to that person being identified. Um, I was wondering if you could talk through the process of finding the bones and then the person being named. Sure. The, the individual, um, this, this is up in the far north of Scotland, almost about as far north as you can go before you fall off the end. <laughs> and that part of Scotland is a real wilderness. And a lot of people who want to get away from the worries of the world or, you know, just want to go and lie low somewhere quiet for a while will find that part of the world really attractive. So we do find quite a number of suicides um, associated in that part of the world. And a gentleman was walking through the woods, Migdale Woods, they were called. It's near Dornoch. And he, he saw a little pile of bones and he thought, oh, the shoes, that, that looks like it's human. So the police were called and it's really in the middle of a wood. And as you looked upwards, there was a tree and up at the top of the tree was the hood of a jacket. And so there was a very young police officer standing next to me, bless him. And he said, do you think that belongs the hood of the jacket to the body? <laughs> and I said, well, do you know, I think it, it's, it's, it's distinctly possible but, you know, there's only one way to find out. Let me hold your coat. Off you go, son, <laughs> you know, up the tree, because I'm too old for that. So he goes up the tree, and it is the hood of a jacket. And inside the hood of the jacket, he finds the second cervical vertebra of the neck. And as God is my judge, bless him, he came down and he said, do you think that bone belongs to the body? <laughs> and I said, well, do you know, I think it's, it's probably very likely, but it's a good question. One, one should never assume. And if they do fit and there is one missing on the body, then I think, you know, it's probably a match. And then bless him, he said, do you think it's murder? <laughs> and I said, well, I think that needs to be wait to be seen. But it's very rare for a murderer to climb a tree and for a bone to be there. But you know, he's asking the right questions, bless him. So what we have is we have very badly decomposed remains. They're almost entirely skeletal. There is um, a pair of trainers still in the feet and that's great because that keeps foot bones inside the shoes. So that they're, they're a great little container for holding your feet. And then what we have is the entirety of the rest of the body and the, the torso is covered by a British telecom jacket. So that gives you an option. Let, let's go see, are there any missing telecom engineers or someone who used to work for British Telecom? But of course, equally, somebody could have borrowed the jacket, bought the jacket, nicked the jacket, doesn't mean it's got anything to do with BT. And it turns out that, that that's a dead end. There's nowhere, no, no missing engineers or anything. Um, the head of the individual is down near the feet. And one could argue that that's really unusual but it isn't in a hanging so when if you imagine an individual is suspended from that tree branch as time passes and the body is heavy then the tissues of the neck as they're decomposing stretch 
and eventually they stretch and they give way. What happens is the first vertebra is so tightly bound to the skull, it normally goes with the skull. And so we find the skull and the first vertebra down by the feet because that's where it had fallen because of course the body had fallen first. And the second vertebra, that was left in the hood of the jacket because when it had decomposed, it had fallen into there. So we were quite happy that this was going to be, this was the evidence of, of what we'd expect from a suicide. There was no circumstantial evidence. So, so there was no wallet that had a credit card in it. There, there was nothing that was going to help us. But the police had found a car in the car park in Dornoch about two years before, and they hadn't linked them together. There was no reason why they should. When they traced the car, they found it had been bought in an auction house in Leeds under a false name. And only now that they find the body, they're thinking, I wonder if that body was linked to that car. Are we looking at somebody perhaps from the Leeds area? So we have a skeleton. And what we do is we, from the skeleton, we will identify, is the individual male or female? And there are quite characteristic traits in an adult that will allow us to tell a male skeleton from a female. Much of it is around sites of muscle attachment. Men generally have much more highly developed sites of muscle attachment, but it's also in the shape of the pelvis. As the female pelvis goes through puberty, it prepares in shape for being a birth canal, which the male pelvis doesn't do. So we're usually pretty good at being able to tell it's male or female, and this is a male. From the, the development of the body, we're able to tell that it's a young male, probably in the region of 20 to 25 years of age. We're not seeing um, degenerative change. We're not seeing arthritic change. And we're, we're able to see in some of the bones that he's quite a young individual. So we say somewhere probably between 20 and 25 years of age. We can calculate his height, which is about five foot six to five foot eight inches tall. And from the skull, we can tell that he was probably Caucasian. But Caucasian doesn't mean white. It means in ancestral terms, something that's north of Saharan Africa and is west of the Indian subcontinent, but not including Sri Lanka. So when you put that into the police missing persons database, it comes back with thousands of names. Yeah. So you can't go and check every single one of those. So what we then do is using those characteristics of a white male, probably, um, it, between the ages of, of 20 and, and 30 years of age, you give it a good sort of wide range, we're able to reconstruct a skull. And when you reconstruct the face onto a skull, you're not looking for a perfect representation. You're looking for something that's just enough to jog someone's memory. And we think it's worthwhile putting it out nationally, and it goes out on Crime Watch. But we know in the back of our minds, there's this car that was never identified. And we get a, we get a significant number of, of phone calls from Crime Watch, all saying the same name. And one of those individuals was the missing person's mother. And she'd been watching Crime Watch and she looked at it and I'll, I'll, you know, I'll, I'll use a false name. She says, I thought it looked like Jake. Now that's great because that then narrows down and says, well, where are you? And she says, well, I'm in Shipley in North Yorkshire with a, like that as well, because that fits with Leeds. Now you've got a name, you can go down and you can talk to the family and you can take DNA samples from mum and dad. What we do is we take samples from both mum and dad and we ask mum if she is the biological mum, because if she is, we'll run her DNA. We won't run dad's because the last thing we want to have to do is to tell this family that actually it might be her son, but it's not his. 
So we always run mum's mum's DNA and preference, unless of course mum is stepmother or or whatever it may be, and dad is the biological father. So we have to make sure that that we what we do is we we keep a kindness in the back of our mind as well. We want to identify who this person is, but we don't want to open up other problems for this family if we don't need to. So we always run mum's DNA and we get a hit and it is her son. And what had happened was he had got into trouble. Uh, he owed some money to some drug runners. He'd bought a car under a false name in a, uh, an auction house in Leeds. He'd gone up to the north of Scotland. He'd lived there under a totally different name. He was known as a bit of an alcoholic, a bit of a drug addict. And we suspect that one day he just walked into the woods, he climbed that tree, he tied the hood of his jacket around it and he jumped off and committed suicide. But until you can trace and that, that, that sort of journey and until you can unite a name to the body, you can't investigate what might have happened. So to that family, we bring bad news. But I suspect that they already knew there was bad news because they hadn't heard from him in so long. So there's a kindness in that bad news because it doesn't mean they have false hope anymore. They know with certainty it is their son. They can reclaim him. They can bury him. They can get some level of closure. There's no crime for us to investigate. But what we're interested, we're not really interested in the crime. We're interested in reuniting a body to the name it was given very shortly or even before that person was born. Yeah, I think the kindness there is is such a, an interesting and it's tough. Yeah. It's really tough because it's not the news anybody wants to hear. But if if you have a family member missing and you talk to family, they say their life goes into a stutter, and it stops at that point the person went missing because everything after there is conjecture. They don't know what happened to them, and the the imaginings in many ways are often worse than the reality. So when we come back with the truth, it's devastating. But it is also kind, I think. And that straightforwardness and that humanity, and I hope this segue isn't too clumsy, but it does kind of make me think then of um, what you've written about, where there seemed to be a total absence of humanity in in one respect, which is I'm thinking of your your work in Kosovo, and uh, kindness is is no place really in in that situation. But so um, I understand that you went out in 1999 to, to Kosovo um, to identify the bodies of people who were the victims of war crimes perpetrated by the forces of Slobodan Milosevic's regime. Um, and I, I, I believe that the, the British forensic team were the first forensic team on the ground. Um, and so I was hoping you could tell us a bit about how you came to be there. So the British forensic team, what, what happened was that uh, Louise Arbor, who was the chief prosecutor in the international um, courts, requested gratis teams to go out, um, who are members of NATO, to say, you know, would you go out and assist with the war crimes investigations? Sorry, sorry, what, 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 how did you call the teams? The gratis teams. So it was, can, can a country provide teams, not, yeah. not charging for their services, but these forensic teams to go out? And the UN at the time was very heavily involved in what was still going on in Bosnia. So that Louise Arbor needed to have another source of experts to, to be able to go and assist them. And the Foreign and Commonwealth Office um, said, we'd, we'd like to send out a British forensic team. And there was a team of mainly police officers and photographers 
and pathologists that went out. And the first scene that they went to was an outhouse. And it was an outhouse where 43 men, um, their remains were in this outhouse, but they were badly decomposed and they were commingled. And so the pathologist, Peter Vanessa's bless his heart said, I don't know how to do this, but I know who does. We need an anthropologist. Now at that point, the police are saying, what the heck do you need an anthropologist for? Don't they go up the Amazon looking for lost tribes? And they hadn't quite understood that a forensic anthropologist is something that could help in that situation. So we had a bit of convincing to do that there was a role for forensic anthropology. So I, I flew out um, and actually the team stopped working until I could get out there. And so we were faced with uh, an outhouse that had a single door and two rooms. And the men had been taken off the refugee lines that were heading down towards Albania. And they'd been taken into these two rooms, separated into the two rooms. A gunman had stood at the door of each room, sprayed the room with Kalashnikov fire. And then their accomplices had stood at the window. They'd thrown in straw, they'd thrown in petrol and they'd torched the building. So they had, had massacred the individuals and then were trying to lose the evidence. But it's very difficult to lose all the evidence in, in that sort of a situation. So we had in one room a much larger number of individuals than we had in the other. So you start in the most difficult room first. And if a gunman stands at a door, your natural reaction is to go to the opposite corner of that room. So everybody's huddled into one space. And as everybody is shot and falls, then so you get everybody behind. So it's almost like a wave of, of killing. There was one gentleman right at the very end who got into the corner first that survived because everybody in front of him effectively took the bullets that shielded him. And when the building was torched, he had to lie underneath these dead bodies of his family, friends, strangers who he didn't know, people who he just met, because he knew that if he came out, then he would be shot. So that's an, an incredible bravery to, to remain lying underneath these dead bodies that were burning above you. So that made him an incredibly important witness um, and physical witness to the, the International Tribunal. So if you imagine all of these people are in the same space, they're partly burnt, the roof collapsed, so they're partly buried under roof tiles. The dogs saw this as a food source, so the bodies are partly disassociated because the dogs have been pulling at the bodies. Our job is to come in and on your hands and knees to work from the front door right the way back to the first bit of a body, to clear a part of that body. But bear in mind, they're badly decomposed. They're, they're primarily skeletons and a mass of, of boiling maggots more than anything. And then to find, okay, I've got a leg, but is it the leg of the person who's on the top or is it the leg of somebody who's further down? And it's about finding where do I need to go to find the person that's on the top? Can I then remove that person in their entirety? It's like that game of Jenga that you have to move a piece at a time to be able to ensure that you're retaining the integrity as much as you can of every body. Some parts will always mix. And so we were able then to, to create a number of body bags, more than the individuals that were um, recovered because some parts you just simply couldn't separate. And the question was, are these men or women? If they're men, are they men of fighting age? And so the youngest, they were all male. The youngest individual was about 14 years of age. 
and you were considered to be a man if you're 14. And the oldest was in his 80s. Now, one could argue they're obviously not going to be um, regular military personnel in those age, but of course they could be rebel militia. So you're just as likely to get a young male as you are an older man who's prepared to fight. But what we clearly have is no evidence of weapons associated with the individuals. They weren't fighting back. They were put into a room and they were executed. And we could tell from the gunshot injuries that most of the injuries were aimed towards the head. Some were into the torso, but most were into the head. And we were able to extract the bullets that had gone astray from the plaster. So if you can extract the bullet, you've got a chance of matching it to a gun. If you know who that gun was released to, you've got a soldier, you know, and you can go all the way up the chain of evidence that says, are there the orders for this to happen? So we very much approached it as if it was a criminal situation in the UK with full attention on being that we expected to go to a courtroom, which meant that our evidence had to be find the evidence, recover the evidence, log the evidence, analyze the evidence, present the evidence. And because we took that stance from the outset, the British forensic team's evidence actually was never questioned in, in The Hague. Many of the other teams were, but we absolutely did everything by our book and that was the right way to do it. But you said in the opening bit that you asked me that there was no kindness there, but there's always kindness. Wherever you find yourself in the world, in the most heinous of situations and depravity, there is always kindness. And that for me is the spark of humanity that you have to look for, because otherwise, you know, how, how do you cope with the absolute inhumanity that man can do to, to himself? And we would find as we're at the side of a grave, exhuming, you know, somebody's son or a husband, that, that widow, that wife would come out with a cup of water for you. It was her kindness, recognizing the awful job that you were doing to try and bring justice to what she'd lost. It's her kindness that, that made you realize this is the important reason that we do this because families have to live with what went on. We do in our own way, but they have a very, very different story they have to live with. Absolutely, being able to see beyond your own pain or grief, just uh, incredible, yeah. Um, was it difficult then, the decision that you must have made, uh, you write about it being quite a quick decision as well, to, to go out there, to explain that to friends and relatives, wh why, why you would put yourself in a position to confront, albeit with these moments of absolutely sublime kindness from individuals, but the horror of the scene that you were going to expose yourself to. Did your family and friends understand that? So um, I'm very lucky. So I married my best friend and I know that sounds cheesy, but we went to school together. So I've known my husband for over 40 years. He knows what I do. And when something like this comes along, he goes, yeah, no, go and pack your bag. You know, you're going. This is what you trained for. There aren't many of you. You need to go do it. So my husband has always been my, my biggest supporter. My girls at that time were very small. So all they were told was that mum was going away to do some work for a little while. Dad was still there. We had a lovely lady who would come in and look after them before they went to school and when they came back. So, so they knew that it, it was temporary. The person I didn't tell was my mother. 
Because if I told my mother, she would have just been beside herself. She would have cried for the entirety of the time. And I couldn't have coped with that. So we waited until I'd been in Kosovo for a week. And then we told my mother. She was furious with me because she'd lost a week when she could have been really worried, you know, so there was nothing she could do by that point. So you deal with different people, different ways. The only time that I regret it was um, when I was out in Iraq and I had a, a microphone with me, it's for BBC Radio Scotland, and they wanted me to record when I, um, what I was out there doing in Iraq. And then when it went out onto radio, my, younger, my middle daughter at the time was about 12, I'd said, I must go and listen to what Radio Scotland have done. And she said, can I listen with you, mum? And you do that horrible moment of thinking, what have I said? No, it's BBC Radio Scotland. They'll be perfectly respectable. It'll be fine. You know, yeah. you should listen to your inner voice. And so I'd forgotten that the reporter had asked me, how do you balance this risk that you take in your job with, you know, your children? What if you don't come home? And I looked over at my daughter and the little eyes were filling up with tears. And she said, what do you mean you might not come home, mum? And I said, well, I might miss the plane, darling. You never know. And she wasn't convinced. And I knew at that point of my children, she was the one who, if there was going to be any anxiousness, she's the one that was going to suffer. So from that point forward, I monitored more what I did and took her, her, her fears into consideration. And yet clearly exposed them in, in not in such a direct way, maybe, but to not to your own death to when they were that young. But there's this amazing uh, tableau that you paint in the first book about your your mother's death and you and your daughters singing um, in that room. So, and... so my mother, my mother died relatively quickly. She was six weeks from the point of being diagnosed. She had liver failure, she had hepatitis as a young person, she had so much scarring on her liver that her liver just eventually packed up. So she was six weeks from diagnosis to death. And um, my two youngest daughters, um, I visited my mother, she lived 200 miles away. And so we visited her every weekend. And when I went up that particular Saturday with the girls, I, I knew from her lack of responses, she was fundamentally in a coma at that point, And I knew she wasn't going to last much longer. And I thought, well, what do you do under those circumstances? Do you, do you sit around the bed in silence? Or do you sit there and cry? Or, or what do you do? And I thought, you know, they do say, and whether there's any truth in it or not, I don't know. The last sense that goes before you die is hearing. And I thought, you know, what a kick my mother would get out if she heard us telling stories, if she heard us singing, if she heard us laughing. And I know some people might find that disrespectful, but for us, it wasn't. We wanted her to know she was really loved. And she sang all the time with the girls. So, you know, we, we'd sing Disney songs and we sang Christmas songs. And she was a big Bing Crosby fan and Vera Lynn. So the White Cliffs of Dover were getting it. And then it was a little bit inappropriate where there's a, there's a Scottish song, which is you kind of shove your granny off a bus. And we thought that was probably yeah. a bit too far <laughs> so nurses and doctors would come in and we'd be laughing and you could see their slight disapproval but we knew it was right that if the last thing she heard was her girls laughing you know what a way to go out and there was a lovely young man I did a book signing um it must have been a couple of years ago now and he came up to me and he said you will never know how much you helped me he said because I was with my mother when she was dying 
and somebody said something and I laughed. And I've always felt horrendously guilty for laughing at my mother's deathbed. And he said, when I read your book and I thought, well, maybe the one thing she heard was me laughing. Maybe that's what she needed to go out of this world happy. And I think, you know, you never know where the words that you give, whether they're good words or bad, the impact they're going to have on somebody. But my girls were so brave. I gave them the choice and said, you know, when, when she died, do you want to go and see your granny? And they, they, they went into a little judgely huddle and they decided they did. And I thought that's great because I want to take away the fear that death has for most people. I don't want them to be afraid of death. I want them to see, you know, this is granny, but it's granny different. And so it was really funny because my littlest, it was only about eight at the time. She's, she's the brave one. She's my lawyer. What can I say? She's the brave one. And so her two bigger sisters were very respectful and they sort of stepped back. She had no trouble. She walked over to the coffin, picked up her granny's hands and held her granny's hand and talked to her grandmother. And I thought, there are young women that are so balanced that whatever happens in life, death is certainly not going to be something that frightens them. Talking about taking the fear away from death, have you thought about your death and what you want to happen? Absolutely. And it's planned, as you'd expect. So um, I, the last thing I want to be is medicalized. So the last time I went to my GP was when, my when I was pregnant with my daughter and she's 25. So I'm a firm believer, whatever gets you, gets you. I've been very lucky that my health has been good. Um, but I don't want to become a slave to medicalization. I want my body to give up when it's ready to give up. I don't want it kept going for 10 years beyond, beyond where it should. So, you know, when they say, but, you know, medicine can help you live 10 years longer. I wanted 10 more years when I was 20. I don't want 10 more years when I'm 80. I really don't. So I'm quite happy to and quite content to think when my time is, my time is. But I know that we don't always have that um, that gift available to us to choose is the honest truth. But if I did, then I would want to be fully aware. I want to know what death looks like. I want to know what she smells like. I want to know what she sounds like. I want to know what it tastes like because it's a once in a lifetime experience. I'm never going to do it twice. So I want to be able to know what it's like. And then when I'm gone, I'm, I'm gone. I'm a great believer that the lights go off and that's the end of it. And what a waste from my perspective for a body just to go up and smoke or to become worm food. So I've donated my body and I've donated my body to my anatomy department. Of course I have. Why, why wouldn't you? I think some of the staff, if they're still there, will delight in the fact that they're going to be able to dissect me. But I want to be dissected by science students. And the reason for that is they dissect to much greater detail. So I want them to go into every single part of my body and to learn everything that they possibly can from it. Then if they collect together all the soft tissue, all the fat and the muscle and skin, that can be cremated and there'll be nothing left because the ash that's in cremation is from the skeleton. But I don't want my skeleton to be cremated. So what I'd quite like them to do is to collect the bones, to be able to boil them because you need to get rid of all the fat. There's a lot of fat inside bones. So boil them so they're nice and dry. And then either they can string them as an articulated skeleton in my dissecting room or in a box for teaching because the prospect of being able to teach for the entirety of my death feels an appropriate thing to do. And then my girl said, well, mom, actually, you know, that's quite cool. 
because mm -hmm. when your parents die, normally you go and you visit the graveyard or whatever, we could actually come and visit you. And I thought, <laughs> yeah, you can. You know, so whether our family is weird or whether we are just particularly well balanced in what happens between life and death, I'll leave that to you to choose. That's amazing. You can really say teaching is in your bones. <laughs> I, I just love the idea of somebody picking up my skull and going, for goodness sake, look at that. I wonder what her mother was eating when she was pregnant with her. <laughs> oh, incredible. And and I think that attitude, yeah, I think, it, well, as we were speaking about at the beginning, like it's inevitable, it's something that everybody will go through. So maybe getting to know death is, uh, you know, having a conversation with her before it happens is just a sign of maturity that my, my grandmother said to me when when I was a teenager you need to be there for your father when he dies you need to be there for your father and I didn't understand what she meant um but she knew her son better than anybody and my father had dementia for a couple of years and there, there was really very little response from I adored my father but there was very little response from we moved into a care home right next to almost where we lived so we got to see him every single day which was brilliant and then it became very clear that his system was starting to shut down and so we did that classic thing where the family goes around the bed and visits him and I'd said to my dad right dad I'm going home now um, but I'll be back in the morning and this was a man who had been non-responsive for two years and a look of abject fear came across his face and it was my oldest daughter who saw it as well and she said mom you're going nowhere I said yeah I think you're right so I had a shower came back and my oldest daughter and I sat with him through the night and we talked with him and we sang with him again um, held his hand and then it was those those dark hours in the morning between three and four in the morning that you started to hear the death rattle and that death rattle is just his lungs filling up with liquid so you know that you know, it's coming soon. So all we did was we sat and we talked with him and eventually he took his last breath and we recorded what the time was. And we sat with him just for that little bit longer to make sure that he was genuinely gone. And then the nurse came in and it was a little bit of smug for us because when she recorded his time of death, we knew it was a good 10, 15 minutes before then. Um, and so the, there was that difference, but there is the bit of superstition in me because my grandmother said, if you're at a deathbed, the first thing you have to do is open the window. So although I don't believe in it, the first thing I did was I opened the window. And for her, in her ways, that was to let the soul go free. And so she was still there in the room in that regard that she told me to, what to do, go and open the window. Yeah, and I did. And that, that was, you know, it was just possibly one of the most um, amazing moments to be able to experience is the death of a parent in a circumstance where it is so gentle, where he made his peace with what was going on and he just exited the world, surrounded by people who cared for him. It doesn't get any better than that, it just doesn't. Yeah, absolutely. And it kind of reminds me as well of going back to what we were talking about earlier about your profession being like, who is the person and their identity? And, and you've, you've spoken about and written about how that sort of fundamentally changes when a person dies, like what they are when they are dead is not what they are when they are alive. And it's a journey, that change, that transition, I think is scary for lots of people. It's one that you have to make alone. It's a completely internal thing, but to be there and witness it with a, with a loved one is, it, it, I cannot imagine it being anything other than immensely profound. 
It is, and, and you're, you're absolutely right. You make that journey on your own. Nobody can die for you. You have to die, but you can do it in the presence of people who care for you. And for some people, that's what they want. Others want to be on their own. And, and that, is, that is their choice. And my father clearly displayed from his facial expression, he did not want to be on his own. My grandmother was right. He didn't want to be on his own and she knew he wouldn't want to be. Um, but it, but it, is, it, it is quite, it's quite profound. You're absolutely right, it's the right word. And it's really clear in, in all of your writing that I've read, I haven't read your, your latest on knuckle creases, but um, in, in the writing that you've made accessible, thank you very much for doing that. Um, the massive kind of respect with which you deal with those bodies of people that are no longer alive. Um, and, you know, you talk about naming the cadaver that you first worked on. And I think we were both really interested, well, James probably more than me, about your views on the other end of, well, it seems like the other end of the spectrum of sort of body farms. So I have, as you might expect, I have a fairly strong personal view on body farms, um, but there is a scientific perspective as well. And from the science that we see from, and I, I really hate the term body farms, but it's what everybody understands. Um, we now call them taphonomic facilities. Doesn't make it any difference. It's still the same thing. Um, but the science that comes out of that, by and large, hasn't moved anyone forward. And the, the whole sort of principle was, we'll be much better at giving a time-death interval. The reality is that if you have two bodies and you place them in a field 18 feet apart, one body will decompose differently to the other. They'll decompose differently because they have different fat mass, they have different drug profile inside them, they have different genetics. Um, you might find that one is buried underneath a tree, so you're going to have different flora and fauna than the other. So that, you know, unless you're, you're looking at a taphonomic facility where a body is found, the chances of them being of any great scientific value to you is, is slim. So you have to ask if it's not advancing the science enormously, what's the point? And what I fear more than anything is that it becomes something that is almost, um, it's, it's like a, a gruesome, I don't know, a gruesome sort of concept of the thought that there are bodies lying around on the ground, decomposing in different ways. How's that respectful? You know, if, if it was my mother, no, I certainly wouldn't want that to happen to my mother. So it cannot be bodies that are unclaimed. That is not a justification for treating a body in that way. But there are people who sign up to it, who want that to happen. Well, you know, entirely up to them if that's the case. Do they really know though? that the science is not advancing enormously when they do that kind of a donation. In many ways, I feel they're better donating their body to the anatomy department, where we will train the future scientists, the future doctors, the future surgeons, the future dentists. Those who will make a real difference to the living, isn't that perhaps a better use of your mortal remains than a, a body farm, which I just, I just find I find it offensive and I find it obscene and I've never yet found something to change my mind, but I'm willing to have my mind changed. I'm open to it. If somebody can say, here's the bit of research that we did that changes 
something mm. and I've not found it yet. And talking about the, the, the bodies that you work on through training, I know that you named yours Henry. Um, I understand that it can take, I think, three years um, until they're um, laid to rest. Is that difficult for the families to deal with? It can be. Um, what, what I find about the gift of bequeathal is it's just such an incredibly selfless act. So this is someone when they're alive that says, when I die, I'm giving you my body. And all I ask you to do, the only thing I ask you to do is to learn. That's an incredible gift. Nobody is ever going to give you a gift like that again. And it's the one thing that we instill in our students is the, the real honor that you have to be given that and the respect that then emanates from it. Nobody in my department ever did anything disrespectful. It was just never, ever going to happen because we made it personal from day one. We would say, last year, the person that you're going to dissect was alive. They still got a wife, a husband, sons, daughters, grandchildren. Imagine if they were yours. Treat that cadaver in exactly the same way as if it was somebody that you really cared about. And they get that because these are professionals. These are young people that are training to be professionals. So from their side of it, it's difficult, but it's really difficult from the family side as well, because not always do a family agree that this is what they want to happen. And so it can be challenging for them. And they may decide just not to let us know that the person has died. And that way, you know, there's nothing we can do about it. We can't move in and steal the body away from them. That doesn't ever happen. If we don't know the person's died, then the bequeathal will never be played out. And that is really up to the family to decide. But sometimes they will, they will adhere to the, the deceased person's wishes, even though the family doesn't agree with it. And under those circumstances, it can be really tough for them because sometimes there may be no funeral. They can have a service if they want, but often they don't. So you, if when you don't have those rituals that you expect to have, there's suddenly this sort of gaping wound, there's a hole. And then three years later, which is the maximum for which we can retain a full body, we will then write to them and say, we're about um, to cremate, you know, your husband's remains, your wife's remains. Do you want to collect those remains or would you like us to scatter them in a garden of remembrance for you? And they've had three years of trying to cope and healing and suddenly the wounds open again and they have to confront it and it's really tough for them so we hold a memorial service every year for the bodies that we're repatriating to families at that time and it's really tough because there they are with all the other families and they know what they're there for and we make a point of reading out all of the names of the people that were returning in that year. And the families sit and they wait for that name. So you've got to make sure that you pronounce it correctly. Because if you don't, they'll come back and say, that wasn't how my mother pronounced her name. So we go through a really, really strenuous procedure to make sure that that day is memorable for the right reasons, not the wrong reasons. And then what we also do is we say to our students, this is a memorial service. You can attend if you like. It's not mandatory. And so that they then have to decide, do I want to be there or do I not? And we sit every year with our fingers crossed saying, please let the little so-and-sos turn up. And they never, ever let us down, ever, because they get the respect. And so they line the walls of the chaplaincy 
and they line the path up to the chaplaincy so that these family members see these young people who really value the gift that they were given. And they speak and they talk about what they learn from their silent teachers. So by the time families leave, it's not the reason we do it, but families will say, actually, I didn't approve, but how do I sign up now? And it's almost a bit of a recruitment drive in some ways, but that tells you you've done something right. You've got a family who didn't understand to a family who now do understand, who are hugely proud of what their family member has done because they've taught all these young people who are gonna go out in the world and help to make people better. Doesn't, it doesn't get any better than that as a legacy for a lifetime. Thank you so much. It's been fascinating speaking to you. It, it's such a pleasure. Thank you. And I, you know, I apologize I'm rude about lawyers. I actually do like you very much. Um, but you know, you're not really that bad. And I can't say anything when I have a daughter in the profession either. But um, it is sometimes just reminding lawyers for us that, you know, the scientist is in a really, really uncomfortable position in that courtroom. Now, you might want us in an uncomfortable position, and I get that, but there is a cost. And that cost is sometimes, you know, my colleagues say, I'm not doing this anymore. And that doesn't help anybody. So I just ask for a little bit of kindness. But give us a hard time, because that's what we're there for. But give us a hard time on what we should know. And I'm absolutely up for that. But you well, know, Hopefully we haven't given you a hard time today. You haven't. You've been absolutely wonderful. You have been a, a true joy and a pleasure. Thank you. Oh, th thank you so much. Thank you very much. Very best of luck. Lovely to see you. So Liv, I thought that was fascinating talking to Sue. Um, what were your thoughts? Yeah, absolutely. She is phenomenal and so generous with her time, the time that she gave us today. And yeah, I mean, she exceeded any expectation I had. Um, and even though I'd say I was tremendously looking forward to it and just brought that, that kind of magical balance of being a scientist and yet also seeing um, the work that she does through such like, an imaginative lens and with such kindness as she spoke about with us. Um, yeah, I think we both agreed we could have carried on talking to her for about seven hours. A hundred percent. And even though we're talking about death for the last mm. hour, it's somewhat up, uplifting yeah. talking to her. Oh, absolutely. Like inspiration, like you said. Yeah. Fascinating stuff. And for those that haven't, urge you to read her books. Um, there's a number of other stories in there and she's an incredible woman. Thanks so much. <laughs>